Today we start a new series, and we're calling it A Quest for Life. And uh, I wanted to talk, to introduce it by talking about the dream that God used to bring uh, my family here. Uh, The dream happened on July 13, 2007. And I've shared it before with you, but I want to share it again because I feel like God's uh, been speaking to me about it by uh, working in my life surrounding it and bringing a little more understanding of what it may look like of how he wants to help us walk into that dream. And now I don't know where you stand with dreams. You know, the Bible talks about dreams being a a way of hearing God's voice uh, quite frequently, actually, if you read the Bible. Uh, You know, it happens to me every now and then. It happens with my wife more often than not. Uh, than me. Uh, but, you know, don't worry. If, if God wants to speak to you through a dream, uh, you'll, you'll learn what that's like, and you'll learn when it's Him. Uh, and the more you pay attention to it, you'll realize the difference between dreams that are of Him and dreams that are just your own crud being worked out. But July 13, 2007, I had a dream that I, I clearly knew was from God. It, just, it was just one of, those, uh, one of the most powerful experiences I've had with God in my life. I was sleeping that morning, and, uh, and in this dream, um, I, I saw myself, uh, skipping a little bit of it, just going to tell you the important part this morning. I saw myself on this, on this deck of a hotel overlooking this city that, uh, that looked like a Midwest city. I grew up in the Midwest, even though I spent the last 11 years in Oregon. So I know what the Midwest looks like. And in the dream, somehow I knew that I was in Ohio. I didn't know where for sure. I just knew I was in Ohio. Uh, which is odd for me because I don't have any relationship, I don't have any connection relationally to Ohio in my background before coming here. And uh, so I'm looking over this beautiful city, and then all of a sudden in the dream it changes. The picture changes, and, and the city, instead of being a city, all of a sudden changes to this drab, brown, gray, black strip mine. Have you ever seen a strip mine? Or seen a picture of a strip mine? They're not really pretty sights. And it was just, in the strip mine, I could see these two lines of cars coming out of the strip mine. And I could, it was so long, I couldn't even see where they began. But these cars were in mint condition. They were all gray, charcoal, charcoal kind of a color. And just kind of drab, but in mint condition. And, and I just had this sense in the dream, before I had much of a sense to even think about what was going on, I just had this sense they're all trying to get out. They're all trying to get out of the strip mine and into, into the beauty of what their community really is and what God really wants in their life. And, and before I had a chance to think about it much, the, the scene shifted, and instead of them being so far away and I couldn't see the, the end of the line of hundreds of cars, all of a sudden it shifted, and it was like from me to the third row away from me, and it was turned to lines of people. And as I looked at the people and pondered them, they were all in just kind of charcoal, gray, kind of you know, looked like they were really professional, but kind of drab, business suit type of a type of attire. And it was lines of thousands of people trying to get out. And if you looked at the skin and in the dream, I could see their faces and their skin very clearly in it. And their skin looked like something you would see on Ducky's autopsy table if you're an NCIS fan. I mean, it was just ashen gray and drab. And at the very, towards the very end of the dream, the Lord just, just kind of invited me and said, do you want to be a part of something as a leader of something I'm doing in Ohio to bring color to people's lives? And, and the feeling when you saw this, the feeling that I felt in the dream when you saw this picture was just this intense pressure, this forced sameness, this, 
this burden of, of trying to conform and try to be successful, trying to find life but not finding it. Just instead having this dreariness and dullness and, and pressure in life. And I got out of the dream and I just wrote it down and I sat on it and about a year, a little, almost a year later and during a time of prayer, God brought that together with a, something that was also in my journal from 1994 where he talked to me about where in the journal I wrote down, he's, he's talking to me about the vineyard and, and God actually said at that time in prayer in May of 2008, almost a year later, that he wanted me to look at Ohio and he wanted vineyard to be literal. If you know, we're actually affiliated with the vineyard here. And so I did and and the process of getting here after that was, was also an amazing thing of just God being so faithful and leading, leading and confirming. But there was one other experience as well in that process. After we had decided to move here in May of 2009, about a month before I ended my last day at my previous job before coming here, we decided to go down to Redding, California, about a four-and-a-half-hour drive. My brother and his family were down there at that time, and we wanted to see him one last time on the West Coast before it was going to be thousands of miles rather than a couple hours. So we go down there, and my, my sister-in-law, Renee, and, uh, and actually other members of her family, they were all, they're all involved in a church that, that, that uh, encourages the arts in worship. So one of the practices that Renee would have on a regular basis, because she has an artistic side to her, uh, is she would sit and pray and listen to worship music and ask God to give her a picture. And then she would paint that picture. And at the end of it, she would end that time of worship and prayer by saying, God, who's this for and what would you like me to say to them? Now, this is, uh, and so we come and visit them and she, she turns around and pulls this out and says, um, I painted this. And God said to me, you're supposed to give it to Ross and you're supposed to tell him that where they're going, God's going to bring great color. God is amazing sometimes in the way he confirms things. And he's been, he's been talking to me a little bit more and bringing this back to mind. That's the reason I'm talking about it today. Uh, and giving me some ideas and, and, and actually an amazing gift. Because, you know, I don't know, I hate to admit how egocentric I can be sometimes, but I kind of went, you know, God, great, I'm going to be able to come and bring color to people's lives. But the, the amazing gift that God's been giving me lately has been revealing to me and working in my life of areas where I have shut things down and I have allowed grayness and drabness and, and pressure to conform me to something other than he wants to do. And he's trying to bring color in my life in some areas that have remained stuck. And I believe that he's also, uh, just because of the way he's been leading us as a staff and, and, and speaking to me about where we're going as a church, I think, I think now is a time when he wants to not only invite me to greater color and accelerate that release of freedom in our lives and that life, that true life that he wants to give us, not the drab life, not the pressure-filled life, not the life that's, that's continually stuck in, in the same things that, that drain us, but I think he wants to accelerate for all of us, uh, specifically through this next series and what we're going to be talking about, some freedom and bringing greater color in our lives. Would you join me in that? journey. I just want to stop and pray for a second. Lord, we acknowledge your presence with us and we acknowledge that, that we can't uh, free ourselves. We can't um, fix ourselves. That we can try and we can dress right and we can push and we can work hard, but, but it's you that brings color. It's you that brings real life. And so, Lord, we engage with you now on a quest 
for real life. A deep, fulfilling life. In Jesus' name, amen. My, uh, my daughter loves Lord of the Rings. In fact, we have the extended version, and I think she's probably seen it a dozen times, the trilogy. I mean, that's like, can you, can you, can you actually waste that much time in life watching a movie that many times over and over again? Well, this last week, I was uh, hearing somebody talk about The Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien's work, and The Lord of the Rings, which is also J.R. Tolkien's work. And it, and it stood out to me. Um, actually, Wendy heard it and then let me hear it. Um, and it stood out to me because they were talking about how so many people love Lord of the Rings, but they don't like The Hobbit. And so uh, there was a literary critic who wrote about this, and he basically said that one of the problems is that The Hobbit is a children's story and The Lord of the Rings is designed for adults, but much more deeply than that and much more different than that. One of the reasons that some of us don't like The Hobbit as much is because it's a literary adventure, whereas The Lord of the Rings is a literary quest. I didn't know there were literary adventures and literary quests, so I learned something this last week. And he defined it this way. He said, an adventure is something where you go there and back. It's something we do in life to just go get a thrill, to, to, to stoke our emotions, to, to have some entertainment, but then we end up coming back and picking up life where we left off without really much change. But he said a quest in the literary sense is, is, is something that you don't choose to do, it's something that chooses you. It's something that comes to you and compels you so greatly that you're willing to die for it. And even if you do come back, your life is radically changed and it's never going to be the same because it is so compelling to us. You know, so often we live our Christian life as an adventure. We live it as we go to church, we get a good feeling, we get a good fix, we enjoy the music, it makes us feel good, we go home, and it doesn't really change our life. Christianity is not an adventure. Christianity is a quest. It's something that's, that, that grabs a hold of us when we really understand the depth of God's love and who he is. When we become convinced of that, it grabs a hold of us in a, such a compelling way that it can never leave us the same. And if we've been approaching Christianity as an adventure, as something that's compartmentalized, that you see, uh, Christianity is not something that just goes and, and, and we add to the agenda of our life. It's not something that we just kind of go and do, but it's something that changes and is the agenda of our life. It's not, it's not something that we just do to enrich who we are. It is a whole new reorientation of who we are. It becomes who we are. You know, Pauline Epistles, if you'll go home today and, and get on BibleGateway.com and, and just do a search for the word convinced in the Pauline Epistles. Paul approached life this way, his own faith, and he approached leading other people's to faith this way too. He said, you need to be so convinced that you cannot help but pursue God, that you cannot help but pursue the mission and purpose he has for your life. He wasn't about persuasive words to convince you to do something you weren't convinced of. His constant bid to you and bid to me and bid to each one of us was for us to be so deeply convinced that life became a quest 
instead of an adventure, instead of a fix to try to get rid of guilt or make us feel good or, or get rid of a problem or make life just a little bit better. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 10, 38. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, there's no backup plan. There's no half-heartedness in the, in the invitation of Christ. If, we're, if we have a backup plan, if there's half-heartedness, Jesus is saying, you're not worthy of following me. But yet Jesus also invites us graciously by saying this in John 10.10. 10, he says, I've come that they may have life, and life to the full. And that word full is this, is this word that just means vibrant. It means colorful. It means, it means abundant. It means just amazing life. And yet where God's taking me and revealing the darkness and dullness and grayness in my life and inviting me to color, I've realized that for too many years I've just made an excuse and said, well, maybe that's never going to change. Maybe that's always going to be the same. Maybe that's all there is in life in that area. And it's so easy for us to approach things that way. One of the early church fathers, a a guy named Arrhenius, hopefully said that right. He's dead, so it doesn't matter. He said this way. He said the glory of God, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. In this series, we're going to talk about the things that that keep us in grayness, that keep us in dullness, that keep us from realizing the freedom from that strip mine, from the pressure of life around us that keeps us trapped. And we, we ask the questions, can I ever be free of this? Can life ever be different? And we're going to discover a path in looking at this of, uh, 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 that we can go to Jesus and he'll lead us to that vibrancy. If you're a seeker here today, and, and by that I mean you're a person who's not convinced of your faith, that's great. I'm glad you're here. I don't want to convince you. I want you to be convinced. And here's the invitation in this series. If you're that then if you will actually put into practice the stuff we talk about here, not from a convinced standpoint, but from a seeking standpoint, saying, I'm going to do this to see if you will find God and you will find that color and you'll find that freedom in a way you've not found it before. If you're a convinced Christian and you're like me and you're, there's some areas where you just have, you just have ignored or, or you've not paid attention to or they haven't been brought up and you're realizing they steal joy from your life, they steal color from your life, then we're going to talk about some things that so often we believe as Christians that that keep us in that place of not really looking and not really seeing clearly. And, And the path that we're going to describe is also a path that will help us grow. You know, over the past nine months, it's been, it's been a big journey for me in this again. It's been, uh, you know, it's overused, the old cliche of the onion. It's been God exposing more, more layers of my life that, that he wants to change. It's not that he hasn't changed me in the past, but, but this series is not just, about, not just about my own journey. It's tied to the theology of the Bible. It's tied to the practice of Christianity throughout the centuries. And, and it's really discussing the idea that the gospel needs to touch all of us. There's a little pie chart graphic uh, that if you could put up, and, and the reality is that, you know, you could look at our, uh, who we are in different ways, but, but the gospel is meant to touch every single area of us, whether it's the emotional, social, physical, or, or spiritual, or intellectual side of us. 
But the practice of our Christianity, the practice of our faith so often allows us to set some of those thoughts aside, to not pay attention to them, to skew them, or to even say at times that some of those are not actually good. We're going to talk a lot in this series about the emotional piece of the pie. Because how we handle emotions drives each of our individual dysfunctions. I mean, think about it. What drives your outbursts? What drives your withdrawal, your escape? What drives if you struggle with alcohol or you struggle with pornography or you struggle with something else? What drives those behaviors? Truth be told, it's really your emotions driving them. And it drives our temptations. And most of us, many of us, in some way in our life, live with a dichotomy between our spiritual lives and our emotions. Now, that can be explained for many reasons. Some of us, because of the way we were taught in in church or or just the way we've reacted to it, we look at especially at negative emotions as being temptation, as being sin. When we feel angry, when we feel depressed, when we feel anything negative, we look at, at, at it as sin rather than part of who we are and the gift of God in the way he created us. In fact, it's not only negative emotions. Some of us, if we've been brought up in the church long enough, struggle with positive emotions. I had a really close friend who, this is a huge issue for him. He struggles with positive emotion because he constantly thinks, if I do something really well and I celebrate too much and I feel too good about it, then I'm taking glory away from God. So he does something really great and somebody comes up and compliments him and he just goes, tries not to smile and says it was just all God. And, and there's this kind of piety that steals, us, steals the joy that God wants in our life. We do it, each of us, in different ways. How many of you struggle with accepting a compliment? That's part of your spirituality and what God wants to free in you as well. We even separate emotion from character and godliness. And so therefore, we can have a pastor or a Christian leader who is, who is faithful to their spouse and doesn't swear and lives great morality, but but they can be passive-aggressive and whenever things are threatening to them, they just decide to not cooperate and be unhealthy. We can have the nicest caring person who's constantly caring for other people, who's taking care of their needs, who is really just a people-pleaser and they're destroying themselves emotionally and physically and they're enabling other people to be unhealthy in their life. We can have people who pray for hours and yet they're critical and flighty We can have people who somehow, all of us can somehow understand how deeply God loves us and how deeply he's forgiven us. And yet we can at the same time live with this fear of conflict that causes us to avoid it and make excuses saying, I'm just not good at conflict. And by doing so, we lie to people and we're not truthful with people. And quite frankly, a lot of times we're not truthful with ourselves because we cover it over. You know, unless we appropriately integrate emotion and emotional health into how we practice our faith and our spirituality, we will continue to live with temptations. We will continue to live with sins. We will continue to live with faults that not only will continue to make our lives less than vibrant in color as God wants them to be, but we will pass them on to our children and they will live with the same dullness and the same grayness in their lives. 
There's this great example in the Bible of a person who does not deal healthy in a healthy way with their emotions. It's, it's King Saul in the Old Testament. And we find him in 1 Samuel 15, where, uh, Sam, where Samuel, the prophet, comes to King Saul and says, okay, God has told you to muster the army and go against the Amalekites who have been outrageously sinful against God across the board for centuries. If you look back in the history, there's actually one point where it talks about the fact that their sin was not full measure. God's patience was not completely gone. And so therefore, he wasn't going to bring judgment. But now he says, bring judgment on them. I want you to destroy everything. In fact, I don't want you to even bring back any of the cattle or the livestock. I want you to kill it all. It's kind of harsh, I know. Saul musters the army. He wins the battle. But in verse 9, it says, Saul and the army spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And we can understand that, can't we? I mean, it was basically a pragmatic decision on Saul's part. It was pragmatic from the standpoint of why would we kill all this good stuff? Why wouldn't we just bring it home? And it was pragmatic on Saul's part from a political sense too that why wouldn't I reward these warriors with booty to take home to their families and wealth to take home to their families? And Saul's greeting to Samuel after all this happens and Samuel comes back to talk to him is recorded in verse 13. And Saul simply says this. He says, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. That's the way he greets Samuel when he comes. He's, he's, Saul's covering. He's not paying attention. He's not reflecting deeply upon any of his emotions going on here. And instead, he's covering and, and you know, basically kind of saying, hey, at least I went. What do you want? I went and fought against him. What else do you want? And if you were around Saul during that time and you were one of his friends, one of his companions, one of his soldiers, you would have probably looked at him and said, there goes a good church-going man. There goes a good follower of God. But underneath, things aren't right. His emotions are driving him consciously and unconsciously because he doesn't pay regular attention to them and let God search his heart. Why does he do this? You know, truth be told, we don't know for sure. But I know from looking at myself and from interacting with other people, why do we sometimes cover like this and avoid our emotions? It's, you know, sometimes just because it's easier. We don't like the pain. We don't like facing the negative emotions, especially in our life. And, and sometimes it's because we consider our emotions untrustworthy. And we think of those negative emotions as being sin and temptation rather than gifts from God. Again, we cannot mature in our Christian character and who God wants us to be without awareness of our emotions, without dealing with them as gifts created by God, as part of all of who we are. We'll never have the Christian character God wants us to have. Now, what's the best definition of Christian character? You know, I... Have you, heard, have you heard this one? Last, this last week I heard that question asked. And, and the best definition of character that constantly comes up is, is what? It's, it's, it's what we do when we're alone, right? Have you heard that before as the best definition of character? I'd submit to you that that's only partly true. Yeah, what we do when we're alone, that does reflect on what our character is. But I'd say a better definition of character is how effectively 
Are we aware of our emotions and respond as God desires when we're treated unfairly, in conflict, when we're abused, when we're angry, when we're disappointed, when we're demeaned, when we're embarrassed, when we're threatened, when we're struggling with insecurity? How quickly do we identify those feelings and respond to them as God wants us to respond to them? Saul's whole life shows no evidence of him bringing his emotions to God. Read with me in 1 Samuel 15, verse 20. It says, Saul says, Saul says but, but I did obey the Lord. He's talking to Samuel again. I went on the mission of the Lord. The Lord assigned me, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder of the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, like witchcraft, and arrogance, arrogance thinking that we know better than God in terms of what he's instructed us to do is like the evil of idolatry. Does the Lord want want us to bring him stuff? Does he want us to do stuff for him? Or does he want our heart? It's always been the heart fully and without reservation. Now, there's three lessons I want to just look at briefly from Saul's life. The first thing that makes him unhealthy in his emotions and, and really brings disaster on himself and people around him throughout his lifetime is the fact that he says no to reflection and self-awareness. Now, he's praying. He's doing the whole church thing. He's even prophesying. He's leading people. He's, he's leading services at the temple. He's leading his army into battle and consulting the prophets and, and praying, and he's just doing all that stuff. But underneath, Saul is driven by this massive need for approval of people. Even when he repents in verses 24 and 25, and then again in 30, he basically says, I'm sorry but please don't embarrass me before in front of the people. And you go back and read the text. That's what he's saying when Samuel confronts him. He says, I'm sorry, but would you please go with me and honor me, make sure I don't look bad? Would you just not embarrass me in front of the people? You see, it's not that he's not totally unaware. Because he actually realizes, and it states in the Scripture, that he actually says, yeah, I gave in because I didn't want to disappoint the people. He he understands a little bit of it. He's just not reflective. He just doesn't spend time looking at it and, and understanding the deep impact it's having on his life for good or for bad. Instead, he simply readily admits that he succumbed to the will of the people and then he spiritualizes it. He says, but I didn't do it, but I told them to take the best. They could have it, but they had to give the best to God. Doesn't that sound nice? We're going to go out and we're going to make tons of money and God told us not to take the money, but I'm going to say, you take the money and just bring your tithe. Just bring it to the church. That that sounds really holy and spiritual. That sounds good, right? But it's not. Because his heart isn't God's. And that's what God is testing. And that's what God requires in order for us to walk out of the dreariness and dullness and grayness and traps of our life into the full color and vibrance he wants to bring us into. People-pleasing and fear drives David even more, or, or drives Saul even more in relation to David. He becomes so jealous he tries to kill David six times. 
But your first reaction, if it was like mine when I've, when I've read this in the past, is that when you read this, you kind of, the first reaction is usually, I'm, you know, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not driven by people pleasing. That's not one of my main issues. Now, once in a while I fall to that, and maybe some of you here are objecting, saying, I'm not a people pleaser. But, and so we dismiss this passage, but that's not really the point. The point isn't whether we're driven by people-pleasing or whether we're driven by fear and, and for performance and, and that results in anger and drivenness and damages our relationship. It's, it, could be, it could be even worry of abandonment that you're driven by and therefore you either, you either hold people at a distance because you don't want to get, have them get too close or you pull them so close you smother them. It could be fear of being wrong or being embarrassed that drives you. It could be rejection, and, that, and you respond to that by escape to alcohol or entertainment, and you just avoid stuff. It does, the point is not what is driving us. The point is, of this whole thing is, are we reflective, and are we taking time to be fully aware of the impact that those emotions that are driving us are having? If we're not, then even if we're not people-pleasers like Saul, the fact that we're not aware, the fact that we're not, not just aware, but we're not reflecting deeply on what those things are and the impact of them is propping up the dysfunction in our lives and the grayness that we experience. And we end up living in a facade because, you know, we're afraid of conflict. And so instead of dealing with real issues that we need to deal with, we, we just pacify and act all nice to people who we're really, really angry at, who we're really hurt and offended by. And we live in the same kind of facade that the strip mine in the dream at the beginning so easily portrays. We just try to look good. We dress good. We get in line. We do the right thing, and we're trapped. And there isn't any color in our life, and we're gradually dying on the inside. And the reality is that we don't say yes to reflection and self-awareness so often because when we do, we don't like what we see. Which means we really don't accept the all-surpassing love and forgiveness of God and His grace of God. And because we always end up attaching that deep underlying motive, that belief that God really doesn't fully accept us and forgive us, we not only don't look deeply at stuff, even if we do deeply reflect, we don't do the second thing that, Paul did, that Saul did. Saul was said no to integrating his emotions into his spiritual practices, into his personal relationship with God. We don't bring our free feelings to God in our contemplative time of worship. So what ends up happening is we come here on Sunday mornings and we decide, oh, I'm going to worship, and we get all excited, and we sing praise songs all the while. We're actually angry at God. You've done that, right? We've all done that, haven't we? I've done it. We avoid the deep personal practices with God. We avoid the things like silence and solitude because when we have silence and solitude before God, all we find ourselves with is anger toward Him. And so we don't have quiet times or whatever we want to call our personal devotions with God because we're not dealing with our emotions or we're unwilling to bring those emotions to God. Instead, they put up barriers. Saul worshipped and he was angry. Saul worshipped and he was bitter. He would quickly repent. But if you read the text, he would quickly repent and then he would quickly defend himself 
and justify. Why? Because he's protecting himself. And we so often do that, even when we're aware of our feelings. We protect ourselves even from God by putting these barriers up or by compartmentalizing our life. And in reality, we can't deeply be in touch with God if we're not also deeply in touch with ourselves. We cut off a whole section of ourselves and say, I'm not going to pay attention to that. And we come to God half-hearted instead of whole-hearted as he wants. We cut off our ability to understand our motives and, and deal with our character. And, and we even cut off our ability when we don't deal with emotions correctly and bring them to God. We cut off our ability to have the highs and lows that God wants us to have. And we start forcing ourselves into this middle range of emotions that leaves us dull. And it also prevents us from, uh, from discovering so often why God put us on earth. Because if you've discovered your quest, that compelling quest, that drives emotion in us. That drives passion in us so much. And when we cause our emotions to be like this instead of like this that God wants, a lot of times we can't even discover the reason why he put us on earth and engage it fully. Saul is not in touch. He's full of illusions. He's praying but he's bringing to God a person that's not really true. He's lying even to God in what he brings to him. And his faith becomes okay. And you know, it, it's okay to be angry with God and to worship. That's not the point. There are times I come here on a Sunday morning and quite frankly, I'm not doing very good. I'm angry with God or I'm angry with something. And I'm not perfect at this, but one of the things I do to make sure I'm not being unreal because I still need to choose to be up here, right, and preach. I mean, Sunday morning's coming, 9.30's going to be here, right? And I'm going to have to be here. Most of the time, if I'm feeling that way, I'll go to Walt or I'll go to one of the other elders or I'll go to one of the staff and I'll say, you know what, I'm not feeling it this morning. I'm really struggling. I need to tell you because I'm going to get up here and I'm going to preach and you're not going to know that I'm feeling that way, but I've got to be real. And it's okay, it's actually healthy for us to worship God when we're angry, even when we haven't had time to deal with it. But are you being real with it? Or are you presenting to God a facade? And the problem with me is I can be that way on a Sunday and I can come up here and preach and, and then I, I jump right back into the busyness afterwards and I, and I forget to actually deal with it deeply later. Instead, we move on in the busyness because the reality is the only way we can deal with things and reflect deeply is if we learn to practice silence and solitude, to be in touch with God and allow God to search our hearts, to search what we're feeling and thinking, and not just what we're feeling and thinking, but to get beyond that, to search what we're feeling and thinking about. You see, this message, this series, and, and I want to say this right now, this message of the series is not just for people like me who my struggle in life has been stuffing emotions. It's also for those of you that feel really, really powerfully. It's not about, about being more touchy-feely. It's about do we reflect upon our emotions and do we bring them to God and do we allow Him to transform us through them? You can be the most feeling person. You can be the absolute opposite of me. And you need this message, this series, just as much as I do. You know, unlike David, you'll never see Paul deeply, uh, Saul deeply reflecting 
and saying, God, I'm angry at you. Why have you forsaken me? God, my soul is in despair even unto death. And you'll never see Saul doing that. He's constantly doing stuff to avoid that deep reflection that engages God in that process with him and stays close to God. David has the same conflicts all of us have. David had the same conflicts Saul had. He just dealt with it differently. David chose to be a person who would say yes to God in looking at his emotions and yes to God to bringing his emotions into his relationship with God consistently and closely rather than allowing them to be barriers. And one more thing about David and Saul in looking at the difference in regard to this one specifically. We constantly see uh, Saul avoiding this whole personal relationship with God by the way he practices his faith. If you look at Saul and you go back and study this later, you'll see Saul always arguing about the rules and argue, always arguing about the principles and he, he responds to things through his head, through, through rationale. But David responds more personally. And it's like us sometimes. We we come into church and we hear a message or we read the Bible and we read it evaluating it, trying to understand it, evaluate it, rather than experiencing it. Sometimes we, we read books or, or, and we, we all, or, or come to a message or read the Bible and we almost treat God like a supermodel and the designer. The designer is not really that concerned about the supermodel. They're just wanting, wanting to make their thing look good and they're analyzing how the dress looks good on them instead of treating them as a person and experiencing them as a person. We read books and, and we look for principles that we can apply to our life instead of, instead of experiencing the peace of a personal hug by God through our time. We, we look at it and instead of, instead of living it and as, as a word spoken to us, we, we treat it as a book rather than God speaking to us now. What's, what's God speaking to you now? Not what's he trying, what's, what, not what does it mean, but what's God saying to you, even now, today, right now? What's he saying to you now? Where is he at in your life now, speaking to you? You know, how else can we know that God's not a Scrooge? Unless we approach life personally. You know, the Bible says God's Abba which means daddy, which means father. It's just a very affectionate term. How do we know God's not a Scrooge unless, unless we experience him as a dad, as someone who comes and touches us when we're down, as someone who, who smiles at us when we're doing well and, and smiles invitingly, invitingly and caringly and compassionately and patiently with us when we mess up? But the truth is that we can easily live our Christian faith like God is a tight-fisted Scrooge or like he's General Patton. Or like, he's an absent, uh, or like he's an absent parent. Or like he's a business partner that we just do for him and then things are okay. The third lesson from looking at Saul for today is he says no to learning and growing through setbacks and difficulties. Saul refuses to completely surrender. In the midst of difficulties, it's so hard for us to find a place of rest, and yet that's what God's inviting us to. Will we rest in the midst of difficulty? Will we rest in the midst of pain, trusting that God is there with us and trusting that God's timing is perfect to deliver us from it? Saul, on the other hand, if you read the story, consistently throws away 
those opportunities for lessons, whereas David, if you read his story in the Psalms, presses into them and waits before God saying, I don't have to strive. I trust you. It's this issue of relationship again that God wants. Are our hearts completely trusting no matter what's going on? You know, he'll come to the altar and cry, Saul will, but he always exerts his willful control. In chapter 13, the Philistine army is being, the, the Israelites are facing the Philistine army. And Saul's been instructed by God to wait seven days until Samuel comes back to offer sacrifice before he fights him. And if you'd read the story and look at the story, during that seven days, the Philistine army is the, one of the best armies in the area at that time, if not the best. And, and the Israelites are really afraid of them. In fact, over the course of the seven days, it talks about their hearts melting with fear and people are leaving and Saul finds himself trembling in this difficult place. And he gets to the seventh day and Samuel's not there yet and, and he just can't stand it any longer. So Saul goes and sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up. And Saul lost his kingdom that day because of his disobedience. Hebrews 5.8 says of Jesus, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience through the difficulties he faced and how he faced them, staying completely dependent on God. And this can sound mean. It can sound, when we think of it that way, it can sound like, oh, geez, God just wants us to have a miserable life so that we can learn obedience. And that's not really the point. It's, it's, think of it this way. It's it, having a position of absolute trust before God is the only way we can make it through the minefield of life without stepping on a mine without tripping over a tripwire, without succumbing to the pressures and the temptations of life, the only way we can make it through is if we retain this complete, utter, absolute trust of God in our lives. Saul says no to reflection. But David says yes to an intentionality of pressing into his emotions, even when they're negative, to try to reflect upon them. Saul ran from God and hid his feelings and made all sorts of blaming excuses around his feelings and for his actions around them. But David runs to God and is open with his feelings and lays them out bluntly with God and says, God, where are you in this? And he waits for God to show up. Saul was unwilling to deeply reflect and stay engaged with God through difficulties, so he heaped dysfunction upon dysfunction. David, in all of his dysfunction, because he is a really dysfunctional guy, became more whole and more free by pressing into difficulties and waiting for years when he was pursued unjustly, when he was accused unjustly, when there were people trying to kill him unjustly, waited for years and treated people around him with honor and respect, even his enemy because he trusted God's timing and he trusted God's goodness. Our quest for a vibrant life and a colorful life instead of a pressured, forced darkness is found in saying yes to the same things David said yes to. And we're going to examine and learn more about following God in the next few weeks. But my guarantee is this, along the way, along the way as we do this, you're going to find more freedom if you press into this. 
if you on your own become convinced enough to press into this path that we're talking about, you will find more color. But here's also another guarantee. Along the way, you're probably going to face some painful negative things, maybe even first, because you've avoided facing those things for a long time. And in order for you to walk out of the grayness and the darkness, God is going to invite you to lay those before him and find his color. I want to just stop for just a second. And I want you to close your eyes. We're just going to have just a couple seconds of silence. And I want you to say just simply this, God, where do you want to bring color to my life where there's deadness and grayness? Lord, we declare a trust in your word that says you came to bring life and bring life to the full, to bring it vibrantly, to bring it colorfully, to establish the uniqueness and the beauty of how you've created each of us. Lord, I pray that the things that came to mind, Lord, that you would continue to touch this week in, in all of our lives and that you would lead us in this wonderful journey, this wonderful path. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to uh, prayer in a moment, but right now I want to invite the ushers to come and Denise to come as well. Um, thank you for your giving. Folks, this is going to be a really exciting fall. I just have this, I, I just have this sense um, that God is going to move in each of your lives and areas where you have thought, areas where I have thought about myself, I don't know if I'll ever be able to fix that. God's going to bring freedom to you. Thank you for your giving. Bless you. And we're going to end today with a video clip. The announcements anyways. We're going to end with a video clip. This is a small group experience that you do not want. So here we go. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business? Trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at shallow small group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth. Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. <laughs> There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey man, how's it going? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you.
we hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow, small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. <laughs> Won't you join us? Thank you for being here this morning. I hope you'll take seriously getting connected in a relationship. If you'd like somebody to pray for you, we'd be happy to. Have a great day.